It was a pleasure last week at the block party to survive the heat together. Nobody got heat stroke, amen. Nobody dehydrated and told me about it, so amen as well. Um, but it was truly a, a pleasure, as Madison said, to see um, just little moments of community again, of the family of God coming together, and maybe we don't have a, uh, a particular teaching purpose direction, but being the family of God and the community coming together is a theological purpose and direction and an outpouring of the gospel. So to get to see diverse men and women coming together and celebrating life, the life that Christ has given us and the life that each of us shares as co-image bearers um, and also sharing love and grace to each other. Starting this morning, we are going to be walking through different Scripture passages for the month of August, and they won't necessarily have a series flow as we have done, and partly to give us a break from series, 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 but also partly for us to dive into Scripture and without an overarching direction, allow the text to speak to us as a church body. And also my encouragement to you, in some of these slower summer months, it is easy for our rhythms to be disrupted. And one of those rhythms, our time spent with God, our time listening to His voice. And just encourage you to use some of your downtime maybe for a new reading, a new prayer exercise, a new discipline in hearing God's voice. This morning, we are going to join together in the reading of Scripture. We'll read from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through, 30, uh, through 21. There are Bibles underneath half of your chairs. It'll also be on the screen behind me, and you can pull it up together. We will be reading in the New Living Translation if you have brought your own Bible or are opening it on an app. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. Then someone called from the crowd and said, Teacher! Please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. Jesus replied, Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? And then he said, Beware and guard against every kind of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. Then he told them a story. A rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. He said to himself, What should I do? I don't have room for all my crops. Then he said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and I will build even bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And I'll sit back and say to myself, my friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to this earth, not just to die for our sins, but also to teach us the way of the kingdom. We thank you, Lord, for this record of your teaching. May your Holy Spirit guide us as a community to grow and learn from you. In your name, amen. Uh, one of the most sacred aspects of my job is to walk with families through the process of grief and death and loss. Um, I'm young, but I've done many funerals in my time, and you can see different patterns arise as you walk through them. 
One of them is there seems to be in Western culture now an unfair burden on families that while we're grieving, we also have tons of logistics to work out. The finances, the will, the legal, all of these matters from cemeteries and those costs to funeral directors to how money gets allocated, how bank accounts get closed out, and all of these things in between. And if you've walked that journey... Even the tightest, most gracious family will find some tension points when it comes to who gets what, how is this divvied, how do we view this, how did dad see us, where do we put money from mom, and how do we walk this journey? I've seen the closest families come to difficult moments of trying to understand this. I, a few years ago, not a member of our church, but a member of the community, um, asked me to just come out. They were in late stages of their own life. They weren't particularly old, but knew that this was here and it was coming for a while. And they just asked me to talk with them and just talk about what was next in life and how to understand this. I shared Jesus with her and we prayed that prayer together. It was a beautiful moment. She also had a beautiful, dark sense of humor, which can be I want to avoid the word fun, but, but life-giving even in the darkest stages. And I was talking to her about how she felt, and I was like, you know, what are some of the, feel, the emotions you're feeling? And she said, anger. And I said, anger? I was like, at God, at the, you know, disease and life? And she said, no. She goes, my parents died last year, and I inherited their beach house. And I myself own a beach house and a beautiful home here that I love And my sisters are going to inherit it because I don't have any children. And my sisters are such idiots. And I'm so mad that they are going to receive all of this that they didn't work for. And they're going to waste away. And it just makes me angry. And I said, let's pray through that anger together. Uh, I don't know your sisters, but I'll join with you in your frustration of that. This story seems to be kind of one of those stories of this Young man, I assume, asking Jesus' question about sharing the inheritance between his brother. There is something for us as we hear these stories in the 21st century, American West, and uh, we hear the story of it's not fair. We have a sense of, in our culture, of hard work equals good life and blessing. If I work hard, it should go well. That's the American dream, right? Anybody can work hard enough that they have enough. And so when someone has a lot, there's a part of us that goes, they must have really worked hard to earn that. When someone doesn't have a lot, we maybe don't admit this, but sometimes go, they probably have made poor decisions, mishandled, mismoved those funds. So people having a lot, we get associated, have done well. People not, haven't done well. So in this story, as we come to it, there's something we're trying to understand about the second story Jesus tells, the story of the man and his inheritance. How do they line up together? First, this young man yells out, public setting, Jesus is teaching, and he basically goes, Jesus, uh, my brother's not being a fair person with the inheritance. Can you go tell him to share more? I'm not getting enough out of this. He obviously believes that his brother got more than he did, and that his brother doesn't deserve all that he got. He deserves more than he got. He asked Jesus to judge it as a rabbi. So you might hear this story, and we would think, that's weird that he's asking Jesus to, you know, be a judge in this case. 
But that was typical in first century Israel. A rabbi would be a wise teacher. A wise teacher would know all of the Jewish laws. And so if there is a legal dispute, a rabbi would be well informed on what was legal and also would be a trustworthy, wise person. So it is very common to seek out a wise teacher like Jesus and say, can you give me a ruling in this legal case? Common uncommon to shout it out in a large group in the middle of a teaching. He makes a public spectacle of it. This part that probably he knows what he's doing. He's trying to get public sentiment on his side, trying to see a lot of people to see, I'm the victim here. Everybody, everybody is nodding their heads as I'm saying this, Jesus. And then Jesus corrects him, says, who am I to judge this? which is weird because he's Jesus, and we know that he is the perfect judge, and he rules and reigns over all things. But in this case, he says, who am I to judge this? He discerns somehow in this man's question that it isn't really a question about fairness and how to divide up a will. He discerns that there is greed and selfishness in this question and in the heart of this man asking it. In the end, he then teaches this story we commonly refer to as the wise fool. He teaches this story about a man who is selfish with everything that he earns. So let's look at the text. The man he tells the story about, the greed that he's sharing about, is a man who cares only about himself. He has what we would call uh, a scarcity mentality. Scarcity mentality means... I believe that there's not enough money in the world. There's not enough resources in the world. There aren't enough relationships in the world. There's not enough time in the world. There's not enough attention in the world. And so I believe that money shouldn't be spent. Opportunities are limited. Success is temporary. And not everyone can have enough. This is his view of the world. There's not enough, so I need to protect what's mine. I need to gather it together. I hesitate to use this phrase even in a preaching context because I think it's been co-opted by prosperity preachers and we shouldn't have a scarcity mentality. We should have abundance mentality and God's going to bless you and give you and give you all of this. The difference I want to say here is I do believe God gives us abundantly and generously. I also believe He already has. He has given it through the work of Christ on the cross. He has given it through the work of the resurrection and the promised hope we have in eternity with a God who made us, knows us, and loves us. And if He never gives me a single thing more than that, He has given me far more than I deserve, and He has given me abundantly and generously. Amen? But still, this guy is like, God doesn't give that much, so I have to protect what's mine. And Jesus is seeing a similarity between the story he tells and this man asking. Jesus, tell my brother to split the inheritance. Normal question. And then Jesus says, okay, question. Here's a story about a greedy, selfish person who's going to die alone and all his money is going to get wasted. And if you were the guy that asked that question, you'd probably be like, what the heck? I was just asking a question about the inheritance, and you're telling me I'm a greedy hoarder who's going to die alone. It seems a little extreme. But what we see in this is the perspective of how do we view God? How do we view Him? Who do we believe Him to be? 
Is he a God that gives abundantly and generously? Or is he a God that expects too much out of us, gives too little to us, and creates a world that is harsh and hard and difficult? This man's thinking about his inheritance through the lens of there's not enough and life is hard. If I don't get everything I can out of this, I may not have another opportunity. Life is hard. My opportunities have been little. And so if I don't squeeze every drop out of this, I'm scared of what my life is going to be. It's a reflection of how he views God. God may be stingy, cruel, And he likes my brother more than me. He likes others more than he likes me. One amazing thing in the passage we can glance over is that the man Jesus tells the story about, the wise fool, trusts only himself. Every moment of introspection is him asking himself what to do. In one translation I love, it says he asks his soul. My own soul. I like to imagine him in a mirror asking these questions. We got a lot of stuff. What do we do with it? Boy, things have gone really well. What are we going to do with all of the abundance we now have? He only asks himself. Old Testament author in Proverbs addresses this idea. In Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15, it says, Fools think their own way is right, but the wise listen to others. We can lose perspective in a vacuum of our own self-interest and experience. If I'm just thinking about myself, if I'm just evaluating my own life, if I'm thinking and asking my own self what to do, I often end up in this isolated, self-contained, limited perspective of life. And in asking only himself, no surprise, he begins to care about only himself. He only sees his own needs and wants and desires. His problems are the biggest problems. His opportunities are the only opportunities. I have too much wealth, but instead of sharing it or thinking about those who may not, my solution is going to be, I just need bigger things to store my wealth. I need to be Scrooge McDuck and dive into a pile of gold coins and swim around, which is physically impossible. Deuteronomy 24.19 says this, When you are harvesting your crops and you forget to bring in a bundle of grain from your field, don't go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners, orphans, and widows. Then the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. This question, this passage, flies in the face of capitalism above all. It's Moses giving advice to the Israelites, and he's saying, don't be as efficient as you possibly can. Don't maximize every profit line and every margin. Don't optimize all of your investments for just yourself and to receive. He says, work a little less efficiently work a little less productively so that others can receive from the work that you've done. Moses is saying you're going to be good maybe at your farming, good at your investing, good at your job. Make sure everything you produce, you are also thinking about those who don't have and those who have less opportunity than yourself. 
Utilize your wealth, not for your own self-interest and so you can have a beautiful vacation home, but to utilize your resources so that others can also have more. The problem in our culture is maybe not this idea of scarcity, but that we have too much and that there is so much to distract us from. There is so much and then there is so much more on top of it and there's more after that. I get caught myself doom scrolling on TikTok because on my Android, the back button that normally lets me out of an app instead plays another video. And then it rewires my brain and I find all of a sudden I'm in the bathroom. I've been there for 35 minutes. And I'm like, oh, TikTok, you did it again. There's so much more and more after that and more after that. It becomes almost obsessive and destructive and corrosive to us in the modern world that we live in a version of FOMO constantly. The fear of missing out. That somebody else has something better and there's another opportunity and there's another picture of another vacation, another place, another life hack, another meal to make, another place to go. That I am now worrying I'm not maximizing my life. I haven't been to all these places. I haven't made all those things. I haven't done that, all those hobbies, all those places. I haven't pet that weird animal. I haven't been to all those things. And I'll give you an illustration. Your phone, Kate, can you, I was going to say toss, can you pass me my phone? Actually, I'm okay. No. I'll give you an illustration for yourself. Think about the last time you began to hate your cell phone. And you were like, this phone is garbage. I can't stand this thing. And I'll ask, did that happen without you seeing another better phone? I love my phone until there's a phone I might love more. And then I start to hate and resent my phone. And my phone's done nothing to me. He's loved me. He's provided. He's answered the calls. He's given me my data at a reasonable rate. But then there's something better, and now all of a sudden I hate it. It's not loading fast enough. It doesn't do those. My pictures aren't just a little bit clearer. It doesn't do that weird thing where it blurs all my friends out and just focuses on me. I need the better version of it. Or soon, my wife and I are going to go on our yearly vacation, and when you're on a plane and you have like 12 movies to pick from, it's not that hard to pick a movie. And it might be a garbage movie, but I'm like, "Eh, whatever, I'm stuck here anyway, and I'm folded up like a pretzel, so maybe this will get my mind off of it. But when I'm home, and I have Netflix, Amazon, HBO, Peacock, uh, Hulu, and every other streaming service, it takes me hours to decide. Because I don't want to miss out on the better movie, the better thing that could be there next. Jerry Brubrick of the Child Mind Institute um, that do research on psychology and the impact of children's minds writes this about our modern FOMO. He says, FOMO is really the fear of not being connected to our social world. And the need to feel connected sometimes trumps whatever's going on in the actual situation we're in. The more we use social media, the less we think about being present in the moment. We become obsessed with the theory of what is possible out there, the idealized perception of what could be rather than the reality of what is and is present around us. 
And this may feel like it's the opposite of scarcity. Scarcity, and then this is, this is too much. But I would argue this is scarcity at play again. Whereas the opportunities and the objects aren't what's scarce, but I view myself now as scarce. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough mental capacity. I don't have enough bravery. I don't have enough creativity. I don't have enough filters in order to make my photos look like that. And now the scarcity is in me. I'm not enough to do that. I'm not enough to go there. And I'm terrified. I won't live this life to the fullest I'm supposed to, like my neighbor is, like Carol is on her Instagram, like others are around me seemingly. There is so much that my phone and the internet shows me, but am I enough if I don't experience all of it? My favorite example of this are hiking videos on TikTok and Instagram, the, the reels I get shared. That's a, algorithm has figured me out, so I get to see a lot of hiking videos. And there's a meme of them where you take a really cool song and you show an idealized version someone's posted. Then you play a terrible version of that song, usually a child trying to sing it, and then you show the reality of that place. So normally it's you know, a beautiful view of Zion National Park, and it's just one, you know, fairly attractive person in front of it, and it's a sunset, it's a perfect time. And then the song changes, and there's like 50 people in the same spot, and the lighting's not quite right. And every time I watch it, I go in my head, you think you're the only person who should be at that beautiful place in the world? You're mad that other people love the same thing you love? You think that the best places in the world should just be for you? They drive me insane. If you've ever posted one of those, I'm sorry. They drive me nuts. But it's this view that everything needs to be experienced in exactly the right way. Otherwise, I'm not living it to the fullest potential. Believing that if we had just a little bit more, or a little bit more perfect, then I would have peace in my soul. Then I would have peace in who I am. If I could just take that photo with the right community of people where we're all smiling perfectly, then I would have community. If I could take the right photo of myself outside, I'd be maximizing the world that I'm an adventurous person. Jim Carrey, it's a beautiful quote, you know, modern theologian Jim Carrey, Alrighty then. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they've ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. Having more, having stuff, going places, consuming and filling our barns with grain is not what gives our lives peace and joy and meaning. Thankfully, in the text is Jesus and is the heart of the generous God that we serve here in the middle. I think about this story of this man asking Jesus about an inheritance, of Jesus, who is God, in heaven, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, that he's in heaven with everything, perfect relationship with his Father and with the Spirit, always loved and being loved. And then also having all authority to rule over everything in heaven. No pain, no suffering, no loss, all glory together. He gives that all up, steps down into his creation, takes on the form of a human being, is now suffering hunger and thirst, has relationships where people betray him. He's never been betrayed in a relationship before. Having people turn their back on him, lie to him, deceive, steal from him. 
He's living in pain and suffering. He's teaching and trying to be loving and gracious. And people are saying he's possessed by a demon. And all of these things happening to him. And as he's teaching, one guy goes, Hey, Jesus, my brother's not sharing enough. And to think of Jesus coming into this moment. And no wonder he says, You want me to judge on those things? That's not my place and that's not my purpose. That the moral of the story Jesus shares with him is not to think less of ourselves, but simply to think of ourselves less. Not to think that I'm a terrible person and I'm deserving of death and to remind myself of that, although some is theologically true, but that Jesus says, just take yourself out of the center of the story more often. Put someone else in your life into the center of the story. Put me into the center of your story and see how I view what I have blessed you with and what I have given to you and empowered you with. Who earned all of this? For the inheritance, it's not even this guy. It's his dad. And then who is to be blessed by all of this? Before we become consumed with our own thoughts about what is owed to us, about how much we can get and how we can maximize it for ourselves. Ask ourselves what no one in this passage is asking is what is God's plan for my life and my wealth and my purpose and my direction? This is what the wise fool never asks. And this is the end of Jesus' illustration in this parable as he says, don't consume yourself with wealth in this world and miss out on the relationship with God that he has intended for you. We can become so preoccupied with our stuff and our self-fulfillment that we miss God's voice calling to us, reminding us of His love, and speaking to us the purpose of our lives to love others as Christ has loved us. And I'll ask you a meditative reflection from this passage. How do you view God in your life and journey? Do you view Him as stingy or do you view Him as generous? Is he a hard God with high expectations on you? Or is he a generous God lovingly and graciously coming to you? We see an author in Psalms processing this same question and landing on the side of a generous God. He writes in Psalm 107 verses 1 through 9, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Some wandered in the wilderness, lost and homeless, hungry and thirsty. They nearly died. Lord, help, they cried in their trouble. And he rescued them from their distress. He led them straight to safety, to a city where they could live. Let them praise the Lord for his great love and for the wonderful things he has done for them. For he satisfies the thirsty and he fills the hungry with good things. The God that Jesus is attempting to point us back to is the heavenly Father that Jesus knows and is saying, before you worry about what you have and if there's enough, remember that all of this, the breath in your lungs, the sun rising in the east, the mountain you climb, the laughter present in community is all created by the God who made you and loves you and has given it so that you could enjoy His beauty and glory forever. Amen. And when we start with the appreciation for God's generous nature, 
we begin to see the world as abundant and not stingy. And then we begin to see ourselves as agents of generosity rather than hoarding. Jesus goes one step further in Matthew chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. He says, you parents, if your children ask you for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask you for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. That'd be super weird and cruel. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask of Him? You're worried about the inheritance in your family, whether you're going to get enough from this. He says, just trust that your heavenly Father is good and is leading and is moving and working in your life. You won't get your fair share here. Trust that God will give you what you deserve and will give you more abundantly than that. He will give you what He deserves, but give it to you instead. This is not your last opportunity. This job you have is not the last chance you have. This investment you have is not the last thing that will work. That relationship you have is not the last good thing. This open door is not the only one that will be open. The biblical view of God is that He is gracious and constantly opening doors, coming to us, extending hands, giving gifts, and to change our mind and our hearts to say, if this opportunity is missed, there will be another opportunity around the corner because that is the character and nature of my God. He gives abundantly and graciously and generously. Once we realize that God's not withholding from us, but giving to us, the next step is to stop hoarding everything and to begin to give to those who have less. If my God gives good gifts to people like me who doesn't deserve them, and if I can wrap my mind around that, then I should be generous and gracious in my giving as well. The more I give, the more I realize what I have. The less I worry about what my brother has. One TV show, uh, very popular a few years ago, um, there's a good scene where two children are arguing with each other, two brothers, about who got more with lunch of their mac and cheese. And they come to dad and they're like, he got more than I did. And the father says to them, the only time you should be looking at your brother's bowl is if you want to evaluate if he got enough. And can we live our life this way? The only time that we look at others, the only time we look at our neighbor, our sibling, our parent, our friend, is to see, are they getting enough in this world? Are they being provided for? Are they being cared for? And then asking the second question, may I be the agent of them receiving more in their life? Has God placed me here that I can give generously and trust that He will continue to give generously to me? As we learn from this story, we begin by remembering that it's all a gift, all of it. Our life is a gift that God has given and breathed into us. This world is a gift. These chairs, this planet, this air we breathe, the food we eat is a gift generously given by our Creator. The wealth we have, the relationships around us, to see it all as a gift so we can begin to see ourselves as a gift for others. As Paul writes to a young minister in 1 Timothy, he gives a framework for this for followers of Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6-8, through 8, he says, 
Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Let us be content with what God has put into our lives and see a transformation from seeing the world as not enough and something constantly to be criticized to seeing the world as a generous gift, constantly able to be appreciated and to praise God for the abundance He gives. In the passage we read in Luke 12, He continues on to teach more about this idea. We see it in Luke 12, verse 22. He's continuing to teach this idea. Then turning to his disciples, Jesus said, That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear. For life is more than food, and your body more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for God feeds them. And you are far more valuable to Him than any birds. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, what's the use of worrying over bigger things? Oof, Jesus really can put His finger on it. And I want to say to all of you in the room, to us as a church body, as a family that Christ has brought together, if you need to hear this this morning, your life is valuable. You are valuable. God has made you on purpose because he wanted to, because he saw you and said, they would be a beautiful person, and I want to see them live, and I want to be in relationship with them. He crafted you carefully to be exactly who you are because He loves you and values your eternal soul and body and mind and heart and all those little things about you. He loves them. And God cares for the things that He loves. He loves you. He will take care of you. Sometimes it's hard to see in this world but to always know that in the resurrection, as Jesus promises us, it all will be well. And that your eternity is secure in the promise of Christ Jesus' resurrection. I, a few years ago, started an exercise to help with this. Because I find that I, do, I can do this. I can be this young man arguing over an inheritance. I can take really beautiful things and I can, when you ask me about it, I'll just share all the negative things about it. I think there's a part of me that feels like that makes me like discerning or smart that I can point out all the things wrong with it. Um, and even my staff had said it of like, you describe really good things sometimes as okay. Um, and I'm like, yeah, okay is great. I'm like, no, okay is not great. Okay is okay. And I'm like, oh, all right. I need to focus on the beauty and the good and to celebrate that and to live in that even communally and collectively. So I started a gratitude list. Um, and for me, it's grown to about 12 things. And there are 12 moments of my life that if I look back, I can relive that moment and feel something and feel joy 
of just being alive and God's gracious, generous nature to me. Whether it's a moment of uh, a funeral of a family member, but my friends coming around, or whether it was a moment out on a hike and seeing a particular beautiful thing, or, or uh, a moment with my wife and a, a special date that we went on and being appreciated and loved. But to remind ourselves we have way more to be grateful for than we do to be longingly over a stingy God. He has given us beautiful things. We need to rewire our minds and our hearts to reflect and meditate on these things. And Jesus continues. I love his language in this verse, verse 27. So don't be afraid, little flock, for it gives your Father great happiness to give you the kingdom. It gives him great joy to give to us the promise of eternal life in the family of God, to be a part of his kingdom. And then lastly, he applies this. So what do we do then? Jesus has an extreme action. So sell your possessions and give them to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it, and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. I grew up um, with a view of this theologically, and maybe you share the same history or, or present mentality, that these treasures in heaven are these beautiful mansions and homes and streets of gold. And my view, because I like Dragon Ball Z as a kid, is that everybody would get their own personal cloud that you could ride around like a cool spaceship. Um, and I was like, yeah, get my cloud. It's going to be a really fast one. The more I help I do, the better my cloud will be. I don't know, that's just me. Yours might be different. And I think I see these passages differently now that the treasure I'm storing up in heaven is not a more beautiful mansion, a more beautiful cloud car, but are more people, more people around me. The stories of others in heaven that I will see in eternity who said, thank you for sharing the love of Christ with me. To see those I care and love be there with me and to come before Jesus Christ with each of you and the love we share and have worked hard in grace to build together, to see that in eternity. And that Jesus is saying, you store up treasures in heaven, not by focusing on yourself with your material possessions, but you store up treasures in heaven by loving other people around you, in your community, in your nation, around the world, by sending your resources, sending your time and energy out there, sharing the good news of who I am as Christ Jesus, Lord and Savior, who has died for the sins of the world, as you share that wealth, you will be storing up the treasures of eternal life and other image bearers in heaven together. This is why we practice what we call kingdom builders. And I know we mention it almost every week from the stage, and it can almost become a white noise sort of thing. The tithe is present, it's a principle in the Old Testament, but the overriding principle of the New Testament is not the tithe, it's there, but the principle of the New Testament is generosity. 
is God has given so generously to us in his son Christ Jesus that we as followers of Jesus live our life as generous people, almost irrationally so to the rest of the world, that we just keep giving and we just keep blessing and we keep giving it all away. And that's why we call it kingdom builders. We are building the kingdom of God here in our neighborhoods, in our nation and around the world by giving generously that others could receive the love of Christ. That's all that it is. It's a fund that allows us to give generously as a church body. And I want to just spotlight again how it works. There are three ways that we do it. One is for global missions, and that is Antigua, that's the Ramon family, is a good example, but there have been dozens of foreign missionaries that we have blessed and partnered with because of your generosity, us being able to give generously. There are local missions and the expansion of the church. And we see one of our biggest partners in Homefront that we get to partner with, where we give generously to families around Mercer County who are struggling in food insecurity, who are struggling in family and domestic violence. And we come alongside generously to try to, as they say, break the pattern and the cycle of poverty and to show the generous love of Christ. And the third category is our future Christian leaders where we invest in the next generation. We will, in this month, and uh, well, it's July, starting tomorrow, be focusing on all of our campus missionary partners, and we have a lot of them in InterVarsity, working and investing in the next generation. And I can tell you, and I've said this so many times, when it comes to InterVarsity, it is a ministry like Teen Challenge or Homefront or Mercer Street Friends that I can talk about for hours about seeing the good things God has done in them. Seeing staff members we have that come from InterVarsity, elders on our board that come from InterVarsity, church planters that we've sent out that come from InterVarsity because the next generation is what God is calling to invest in. So these are the three areas. It's global missions, local church expansion, and it's future Christian leaders. But I also want to give a bonus one in future Christian leaders because we just celebrated. No, this was working before. Okay, in kids camp um, where we just celebrated and the huge amount of joy that God was giving abundantly in that was because of kingdom builders and because of your generous giving that we were able to transform this church. I was a little sad today. I didn't have a puppet helping me with my illustrations. Um, But these are all out of our generosity. And I'll tell you something about generosity. We teach it and give it, not just because we want to serve these projects and these children and these families, but I firmly believe it is for your benefit to live a generous life. That the more that we give, the more we are transforming our heart and our minds to think the way that our God thinks, to live the way that our God lives, to put ourselves into the pattern of Christ Jesus who gave of himself freely and abundantly. We just celebrated communion where Christ poured out himself. And as we learn as a church to pour out ourselves in generosity, we root our minds and our hearts into the promise of eternal life that Christ has given us. And we live our lives from a, not a scarcity mentality anymore, but out of an abundance mentality. And I see all of this world as a blessing and as a gift as I practice giving blessings and gifts to others. If you join me in prayer this morning, bow your heads with me.
the greatest abundant gift we have is the gift of God's Son, Christ Jesus, given to us and poured out for us. If you this morning don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus or you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want to give you a chance just to take one step of faith and to pray a prayer of welcoming in that relationship with Jesus, receiving his generous love. If you are a follower of Jesus, use this as a time to reconnect, recommit to that loving relationship. Pray this with me. Jesus, I see you. I see the goodness of your generosity and your love. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe that you are God and that you lived on this earth and poured yourself out for us. I believe that you died on a cross, giving us forgiveness for sins. You were buried and you resurrected, providing us with eternal life through you. And that by you, I may live forever free of my sin and my guilt. A gift that you have generously given to me. This morning, today, I receive that gift. And Jesus, I say, I will follow you with my life. I pray this in the name of Jesus. With heads bowed, let's just one final prayer for all of us. That we invite you, Holy Spirit, to make us generous people who give freely and abundantly, who love freely and abundantly, and who know you as a free and abundant and generous, gracious God. May we live in that abundance and appreciate the goodness of what you've already given. And may we give to others. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Peace.